My name is Autumn Giat, and this is Working Girls History, a podcast of and for the working girl. Women will die, like my grandmother died, if abortions made illegal. Women around the world right now are dying. If you said you like you came from a family of twelve, nobody would say, "Oh my God." Rhode Island was the birthplace of the American Industrial Revolution. The mill workers would often be first and second generation immigrants, and in Woonsocket and Pawtucket, a majority were French Canadians who had left the villages surrounding Quebec in search of work. This is how Ernestine Ledger's family came to Rhode Island in the early 1900s. My name is Susan Ernestine Moritini. So Ernestine, which is my middle name, was my father's mother, my grandmother. And um, she was born right here in Central Falls. Actually, in doing, I always thought she was born in Canada, but it turns out her parents were born in Quebec, Canada, and they came to Rhode Island to work and with her oldest sis- sibling, and she was born here. Um, and she lived in a tenement in Central Falls with her five siblings and her parents, and that's where she grew up. To understand more about the daily life of mill workers and their families, I spoke with Ray Bacon over the phone. Ray Bacon's love of local history has led not only to the preservation of vital aspects of the Blackstone River Valley's past, but also the education of visitors to the city of Woonsocket from all over the world. I asked Ray about the importance of the French-Canadian identity to families like Ernestine's. Well, you've heard of that sort of how do you try to reconciliate the the language, the ethnicity of your old country with the new one, which is still a problem? You know what I mean? La survivance, or the preservation of a defiant French-Canadian culture, was a crucial element of Québécois identity. By 1920, roughly three-quarters of French-Canadian immigrants lived in New England, most created ethnic enclaves in mill towns. In Rhode Island, these were Woonsocket, Central Falls, and Pawtucket. This is how Ernestine came to live in Central Falls first. And when did she leave Central Falls? Well, she met my grandfather, who's Andre Ledger, and um, he was born in Calais, France, and he came over when he, to um, Ellis Island when he was 18. And he moved to Pawtucket um, to work as a weaver in a lace mill. And I don't know exactly how they met, but they did meet. And they got married um, in 1917 here in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And how many children did they have? They had five children um, within 10 years. Yeah, my father was the youngest, um, and they were all you know, right in a row. And they lived in a, in a tenement in Pawtucket. And, um, you know, my grandfather was the only one working, again, as a, as a lace weaver, didn't make a lot of money. Um, my grandmother, Ernestine, was the homemaker. And they really struggled to uh, make ends meet. 
and in 1927, they, dis- they realized that she was pregnant again with their sixth child. I also asked Ray about the economic circumstances of most mill families. Oh, they worked yeah. in the factories, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were making, uh, um, you know, they probably make $5, 10 $15 a week during that period, depending on the job. Yeah, sometimes you, you, you'd find something like, you know, roughly $5 a week or something like that. Plus bonus if they did over their quota. Let's say they were expected to do 100 pounds of work or something. And if they did 110, they got a bonus, a little bonus. But no pensions, no care for their health or anything like that. But the answer is, yeah, they they worked. I would say there was no such thing as a minimum wage, but they worked for, for pennies, for pennies an hour. And how large was the average Canadian, uh, French-Canadian immigrant family? Well, they like... probably know. The average probably was around seven or eight, but there were some that were 20. Wow. You know? But, I mean, I mean, an average... If you said you like you came from a family of twelve, nobody would say, "Oh my God," and they would say, "Probably, oh, you're such a good Catholic," you know. And so, what happened in 1927? Well, in 1927, unfortunately, they had my grandparents had to make the very hard choice: um, what to do with her about this pregnancy um, to bring in another baby. They couldn't afford. They couldn't afford the children they had, and. Um, they made the very hard choice to terminate the pregnancy. And being that they were poor and they were immigrants and um, there was no option for them to go to a doctor or go to a clinic or go anywhere, and they had to seek an illegal abortion. And she did that, and uh, my grandmother died on um, August 11, 1927, from that botched illegal abortion. And she left behind those five children. She did. She left behind my grandfather and his the five young children. My father was only 18 months at the time. And he was the youngest? He was the youngest. So here is my grandfather with the five children and, that, and no one to care for them. So he actually remarried pretty quickly and um, moved with his new wife to the Bronx and I think the reason that he he actually moved a lot, and I think the reason that he moved was because, you know, the mill jobs weren't always guaranteed, and so he had to follow the lace uh, mill work around where it was available. So I think that he moved the whole family to the Bronx. She had two children, so now there were seven young children, um, and this new wife and my grandfather, and living in the Bronx. And I have one picture of my grandfather, and it's with these seven children, with my you know, father and his four siblings and the two stepchildren. And um, they look pretty ragamuffin. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, they did move a lot, and the kids were uprooted a lot, and um, there wasn't a lot of love from this new stepmother, and I think they just, they just um, grew tough. And so they moved from Pawtucket to the Bronx. Were there any other places that you know of? I know they moved back to Rhode Island, and they were in Central Falls. They were in Barrington. They were in Pawtucket. There's just, you know, it seems like with every new census, there was a new address. And 
So what happened to the kids once they started reaching, like, teenaged years? Well, once they reached 16, um, each child was pulled out of school and put to work at, at that time was the Rhode Island Lace Works in Barrington, Rhode Island. That's where they were living. And they had to turn all their money over to the family to help support the family. Um, and I don't think they were very happy about that. Um, my father had met my mother um, in eighth grade band, you know, and he had a lot of friends in school and then just to be to be pulled out and put to work. And um, it, it, yeah, it wasn't ideal and it was it was very hard. Ray also spoke to me about education for poor working class families when he was growing up and for the generation before him. Ray would have been around the same age as Susan's father, Richard, and Ray's mother was of the same generation as Ernestine and Andre Ledger. Well, most kids that I went to high school with, or went to to grammar school with, did not go beyond high school. Okay? Where did they go? They went to work, or they went in the Army. But a lot of guys my age, and the draft was there, you know, used to volunteer. I was 18, 19 years old, and Korea was finished. So a lot of us went in to fill in our time at that time. But my mom's age, that would be, she graduated from the same school, St. Anne, in 1926, okay? Mm -hmm. There was no doubt that she went right to work. Where did she go to work? She went to work at one of the French mills called the Alsace in Woonsocket. Textile worker. And what happened to the boys? Well, the boys, I mean, here we're, we're right up to World War II, and as soon as they could, they all joined the military. Um, and the girls, you know, as soon as they could, they got married. <laughs> so basically, everybody got out of the house. Um, and unfortunately, uh, my father's oldest brother, Rene, was killed in World War II over Africa. And it's pretty sad because he left the house not speaking with his dad. They didn't really have a relationship with the stepmother. And um, he died, you know, not on speaking terms, and that's pretty sad. And your father joined the service as well, He did. He joined the Navy. He ended up going to um, Corpus Christi, Texas. And he was, um, uh, he flew in... um, planes over South America. And he actually, um, my mother joined him down there. They they were married here, but then she went down there with him. They were only 18 and 19 years old. And um, then they soon had my brother, oldest brother, Richard, in Texas. So there, there are long-lasting repercussions of Ernestine's death. Yes. Be, these children, these young children who are already poor, so they already had that against them, working against them, didn't have a mother, and then you know I, I've met my grandfather. Not, I didn't spend a lot of time with him because my father was not close to him. But he, you know, I didn't hear anything nice about him. He was a pretty hard man, and he there wasn't a lot of love there. So I think they, they grew up um, constantly moving without a lot of love and poor. After this break, we are going to talk about the impact of Ernestine's story today.
you've done a really extensive family history and it's it's amazing. Thank you. I mean, it's not easy putting together and finding these documents. What drove you to learn about Ernestine to do this family history? Well, I years ago, maybe, you know, I, I just was getting very upset seeing how the country was going. You know, it started in Texas where they were closing down clinics and making it hard for women to get abortions. And, you know, then it it, it spread. And um, even right now, you know, the, even Ohio, they just passed the heartbeat law. And I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that um, we're at this point again where abortion might become illegal. And, you know, it it's just, it doesn't make sense to me. So it, first, uh, about five years ago, I started volunteering at Planned Parenthood. I was an escort, and I found that very rewarding because I felt like I was doing something to help, but it wasn't enough. And then um, a very good friend of mine knew about this story. I really hadn't told many people. And um, she said, you really should tell the story of your grandmother. And I was very nervous about it. And I said, well, I can't talk about it, but I'll write about it. Um, And this was before the uh, hearing at the representatives in um, the state house. And at the last minute, I decided just to tell it. And I'm glad I did. Since 2017, Susan has testified before the Judiciary Committees in both the Rhode Island House of Representatives and the Rhode Island State Senate, whenever the Reproductive Health Care Act is reintroduced to the General Assembly. On January 29th of this year, 2019, Susan sat before the House Judiciary again to speak about Ernestine. Thank you, Chairman Craven and committee members for allowing me to testify tonight. I was going to say today, but it is pretty late, and it's tonight. It's almost tomorrow. <laughs> My name is Susan Ernestine Moratini. I'm a lifelong Rhode Islander, and I currently live in Bristol, Rhode Island. I am here in support of H5127, the Reproductive Health Care Act. I need to speak to you about my grandmother, Ernestine, and the many other women worldwide who have died from complications due to unsafe abortions. This is really a story of mothers and daughters, grandmothers and granddaughters. That is how Susan's family history had been handed down to her. How did you find out that Ernestine had died from a botched abortion? My mother told me, I don't remember when, but it was definitely after I was married um, and my own children were you know, probably about 10 or 12. And she didn't talk about it a lot, you know, um, but just mentioned that that's how she had died. And, you know, I, I really knew little about Ernestine other than I had her name. Um, and I really didn't think about it much until all this um, negative negativity towards abortion started happening. And then I decided to do some research. And it's it's a compelling story. And what are some of the things that you wish that you can't really fill in with census records, some things you wish you knew more about? Well, I only have one picture of her. Um, I'm glad I have it. But um, I wish I had more pictures of her. I wish my family had talked more about her. Growing up, I never, other than my mother telling me that I, she was never talked about. Um, they talked about the, you know, the awful stepmothers 
that uh, my father had, and um, but they never never talked about her because you know, it wasn't something that a family would talk about. I was never brought to her where she's buried, to her graveside, and um, I just never felt any sort of connection. Tell me a little bit about finding her grave. Well, um, so my my husband went to the Providence City Archives, and he found her death certificate. It's just a line in a huge book on the seventh and a half floor. <laughs> um, but it's there, and it, you know, it listed her name and her parents' name and that she died of complications. It doesn't say abortion, but that's what it is, bleeding infection from an, you know, an abortion. And, um, and it said she was buried in Pawtucket. So that began the search of where she was buried. And Pawtucket has a lot of cemeteries. Um, and a friend of mine said, well, why don't you check with the, the diocese, the Catholic diocese, because chances are she was Catholic and she'd be in a Catholic cemetery. And so we did. And sure enough, they, they pointed us right to her grave in the Notre Dame uh, Cemetery in Pawtucket. And, and we went there, and it was, just, uh, it was just so comforting to know where she was, to know she was t- properly taken care of, even though you know her parents and my grandfather and his uh, current wife they're all buried in the same cemetery, but they're not near her. She's by herself. Where did you think you would find her? I didn't think she had a grave, actually. I I just thought, I knew they were poor. I don't know, I just thought she had ended up in a pauper's field or some, something. So I was very happy that she has a grave, stone, and well, well cared for. So fast-forwarding again to your involvement, uh, why why do you think it's important that people hear this story and other stories like Ernestine's? Because women will die. Like my grandmother died if abortion's made illegal. Women around the world right now are dying in countries where abortion's illegal and and they're going to seek abortions whether it's legal or not. That's just a fact. And um they need to be safe. They need to be safe because most they have families and they you know these children are left behind and no one seems to be that concerned about the women or the children left behind they're they're all concerned about the unborn baby but i think the concern should be more towards the very hard choice that these women with their husbands have to make and the you know repercussions of the families left behind should they uh, not survive that unsafe, illegal abortion. Susan confided in me that she had a terrible fear of public speaking, especially when she was talking about something as emotional as her grandmother's death. Still, she testified. I hope by telling her tragic story, my family's tragic story, that I can promote safe, legal, and accessible abortions worldwide. Please ensure that H5127, the Reproductive Health Care Act, be moved to the floor of the House for a full vote. Abortions will happen worldwide, whether they're legal or illegal, and half of those will be unsafe. All mothers, including those seeking unsafe abortions worldwide, have lives that are worth protecting. 
My grandmother's life was worth protecting. The House Judiciary Committee finally approved the Reproductive Health Care Act, sending it to the floor for a vote. This bill would enshrine abortion protections into state law. It was passed by the House on March 8, 2019, on a 44 to 30 vote after nearly five hours of testimony. The last time a vote on a bill to codify Roe v. Wade happened in Rhode Island was in 1993, when it passed out of the House of Representatives but did not pass in the Senate. On Friday, May 10th, the Senate Judiciary Committee announced that they will be voting on the Reproductive Health Care Act. This vote will take place at the State House on Tuesday, May 14th. It's important that you show up and show your support for this bill. For more information, check out The Woman Project at thewomanproject.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. In the next episode, we will hear more about Ernestine and the climate of public health and pre-Roe abortions. We will also hear from Rhode Island public officials, allies of reproductive justice, who will act as the voice of Rhode Islander Henri Boucher, who was interviewed in 1939 about his life working in the mills during the Great Depression. I want to say thank you to Ray and Susan. I also want to acknowledge the support from the URI Applied History Lab, the Museum of Working Culture, the Woman Project, the Rhode Island Coalition for Reproductive Freedom, and the Rhode Island Labor History Society. This episode is dedicated to all the women in my family, especially my mom. Happy Mother's Day. Working Girls History was recorded in the podcasting studio at Watchier Writers Club, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators. Visit them online at watchierclub.org or stop by club headquarters at 160 Westminster Street in downtown Providence. Watchier Writers Club is not responsible for any content produced in the club studio.